Good morning, everybody. Thanks. Oh, sorry, I was supposed to like sniff and things before you put the mic to your face. Oh, <clears throat> so here's what we're up to this week. What we're doing with our teaching time is we're wrapping up our series on the Gospel of Mark. And um, although I'm like, didn't just communicate this very clearly, I put a better note here. I'm excited. So let me try that again. I'm excited that we're wrapping up our series on the Gospel of Mark. And here's, here's why. Um, like most Christian churches, we tend to teach the ends of the gospel stories, those last chapters of the gospel stories, those parts of the stories that deal with Jesus's death and his resurrection. We tend to teach those in the spring around Easter. And that makes sense. Easter's a good time for us to remind ourselves of those parts of the Jesus story. And, but at the same time, I think when we do that, when we focus these stories or address these stories in that season, um, some of the demands of the Easter season mean that we often choose to see them in kind of this specific Easter light. And as we noted last week when we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus and our haste to kind of get to the miracle of the resurrection, which is the thing we're excited about, we, we rarely dwell for very long on Jesus's death on that Friday. And as we talked about last week, this can shortchange our appreciation for how the end of Jesus's life offers guidance for how we can face suffering ourselves. We miss that lesson. And similarly, in our haste um, after we get to the resurrection and talk about it, in our haste on Easter mornings, a lot of times in our sermons, to get to the Great Commission, which is this moment about 40 days after Jesus rises from the dead when he gives a mission to the church, and it's usually where an Easter sermon ends, and our rush to get to that, we, we rarely spend much time on the fear and the confusion of those first moments after the resurrection is discovered. And this, I want to contend this morning, shortchanges our appreciation for two things, which are going to be our subjects today. Namely, the awe of the resurrection event itself, the awe of the event. And then two, the adaptability of the gospel stories. And today, because we're reading Mark's gospel outside of the Easter season, we can spend time here. And I'm going to warn you that like, in a way that I've been like wrestling with all week and feel a little embarrassed about, this is like an extraordinarily disjointed sermon. So I'm sorry about that. There's going to be like a sermon and then, like, uh, then another. But there, it's not going to be twice as long as a regular sermon. But there are two parts. But I think that if you kind of come along with me, um, there are going to be some things that matter and can be helpful for us here. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to start with the first of those things, which is the awe of the resurrection event itself. The awe of the resurrection event. The last chapter of Mark's gospel ends really strangely. And in fact, if you have a phone with you this morning that has a Bible app on it, I actually want you to look it up. I don't usually say that, but oh, look at all these people going for purses, going for pockets. I love it. Look it up. And the reasons are going to be more clear when we, in a few minutes, but I still think having it in front of you is, is going to help us get started. And if you don't have it, we're still going to put it on the screen, but I think this will all make more sense in a little bit. But nonetheless, I'll read for us. It's Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Here's what we have. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. 
And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. Look, there's the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, stop there. Don't peek. I know I had you get your phones out and look at it, but don't, don't look at what comes next. Stop right there. So what do, we, what do we see in this passage? We see a couple things that I think we can note. First, we should note that the story picks up after the Sabbath, which means the early mornings of Sunday, hence celebrating Easter on Sunday morning, um, but the early mornings of the Sunday following the Friday of Jesus's crucifixion. As we saw last week, Jesus dies at, at noon, and after this, after he dies, his body is taken down and it's placed in this nearby tomb belonging to a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And when this happened, his body was not properly prepared for a Jewish burial. So um, this becomes a source of offense, of course, for his remaining followers, all of whom we should note at this stage are women. But Sabbath customs would strictly dictate, or they would, sorry, they would strictly prohibit these women from doing anything about this offense that they've taken about the way Jesus's body is being handled on Saturday. You can't touch a dead body on a Saturday, that's for sure. And so it would seem that they put a plan in place for honoring Jesus's body as soon as possible, which becomes that following Sunday morning. That's why we get to this spot. Now, as this passage makes super clear by having the women bring these spices, nobody is expecting the body to be missing. The whole point is that it is still there. And this means that these women are planning to anoint the body of a man who has been dead for no less than 42 hours. And they're doing this in the Judean climate. And so they are assuming here, heading to this tomb, that Jesus's body is already going to be in a pretty significant state of decomposition, not to be gross, but that's the reality. And I bring this up because we need to see the actions of these women as part of a deep love and respect for Jesus. That's what they're, they're up to. They do not have to do this thing that they're going to do, but they're going to do it anyway, even though it's going to be kind of awful. Now, nonetheless, when they arrive at the tomb, not only do they find that the stone is gone, but obviously the exciting thing is they find no body in there. Now, also of note here, right, in and of itself, this doesn't mean anything. Well, it means one thing, but it turns out to mean a different thing than what you would have expected. Anybody's assumption, if you were these ladies, anybody's assumption is going to be that the body has been stolen. Jesus is a controversial figure. He has a lot of friends, a lot of enemies. Like, that's going to be your first assumption. But that's why in Mark's gospel, we have that assumption immediately countered in the text by the announcement of this, of this figure in white, right? He explains why there's no body. And he says, the body isn't gone. It hasn't been taken. He, it's alive that Jesus has been raised and that Jesus has now gone on of all places to Galilee, some distance away to the north. And there he's going to wait for you to come to him. So Here's what we see, right? The women have come to the tomb out of a deep love for Jesus, a sacrificial love, a willingness to do something unpleasant for him and in honor of him. When they've arrived at the tomb, they've found him gone, and now they're told by this strange figure in white 
that he's not there, and specifically they're given an instruction, right? The instruction is to go and share the news. Now, thus far, we're familiar with the story. But then we get to verse 8 here, and that creates a mystery for us, right? Some of you like I saw eyebrows raise as we read it. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anybody, for they were afraid. And if you're looking in your app, right, that's it. That's the end. That's the end of Mark's gospel. That's the end of what Mark wanted to say to the Christians in Rome that we've been following his conversation with over the last month. These Christians who are facing imminent threats to their own lives and their persecution. That's the end of Mark's witness about what is important in the Jesus story for us to remember. The women flee for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. I think we have no choice when we read that but to wonder, like, what are you doing? That's a weird ending. That's not an ending. Last week, we spent considerable time trying to remind ourselves about Mark's audience, and it can be helpful for us one last time to do that again. Now, as we noted, Mark's readers, and this is critical to reading this gospel, his readers are already Christians, which means that they are people who already believe in Jesus's resurrection. They don't need to be convinced. They're currently hiding in catacombs under the ground in Rome, staking their very lives on that belief in the resurrection of Jesus. But because of their situation, they're also afraid, right? In their situation, who wouldn't be? So I would contend there's a natural parallel at work here then to the experiences of these first witnesses of Jesus's miracle. And that perhaps part of what's going on here is there's always encouragement to be found in remembering that even those who were there, those people who knew Jesus personally and were at that empty tomb, that their first reaction wasn't like, hallelujah, look at what happened. Their first reaction is confusion and fear. Now, in any tradition, it can be tempting to kind of lionize and heroify founders right? Certainly we could talk about that in our country, talk about that in the church, talk about it in a lot of places. But I want to contend also that this gospel seems to aggressively combat that tendency, that desire to turn the founders into heroes. The key thing to remember seems to be, at least in Mark's gospel, that the people that were there at the beginning were just people. They were just people. Which is to say, of course, if you're one of those readers in Rome, they're just people like you. And I think The reason this matters in Christianity in particular is because we're not building a faith to worship ourselves as we grow, or at least we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be building a church that's set on doing what these women are told to do, which is to follow Jesus to the places that he has gone, to follow after him, even at great cost. There's just one hero in the church's story, just one. And the truth is, and I think Mark helps us remember this, we don't always understand that hero. Even more than that, I think Mark 16, 8 reminds us that the actions of the hero of our faith terrify us sometimes. I said at the outset that one of the things we don't spend enough time on when we look at the resurrection story is the awe that the story is meant to inspire. And I think that's what this verse gets at. 
Jesus has done, and it's easy for us to forget it, what Jesus has done is awful in the most literal sense of the word. Awe doesn't mean to be amazed. It means to be filled with a mix of fear and reverence. That's what it means to be in awe, to be filled with a mix of fear and reverence. It is to see simultaneously the smallness of ourselves over and against the grandeur of something else, right? Like the churning ocean, if you're like on a little boat in the middle of it, like the churning ocean is awful. The vastness of space is awful. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is awful because it is evidence of a power not only greater than the power of death, which is the power that we all most supremely fear, but not just a power greater than that power, but a power that's capable of undoing that power, of making a mockery of it. The, the Jewish women at the empty tomb, which is also to say we should pause to note people with the least power in the Roman world, Jewish women in Palestine during the Roman occupation. This is the people with the least power are being confronted on Easter morning with the most power that has ever been seen on this earth. The gap between them is incomprehensible. Their terror, in other words, is completely understandable. But crucially, Crucially, it is also a moment that's relatable to Mark's readers, many of whom are also women, because they too know in their context what it is to feel small against the might and the strength of a greater power, to be afraid as they're afraid of Rome. And so in that context, I would contend what a wonder and an encouragement it would be to reminded, to be reminded of the drama of what Jesus has done, of the scale and scope of what Jesus has done. After all, as we talked about last week, the most power that the emperor, Nero, is capable of wielding over anybody that he's persecuting is death. That's the worst he can do. But as frightening as that power might be, how much less awful is that than the power of resurrection? To our ears, I think, when we read verses 1 through 8 of Mark's gospel and see that ending coming out of nowhere, it's a mystery and it's confusing. Why would he want to close by telling us that Jesus' resurrection is scary? That's not the message any of us are looking for when we're working through the gospel. But I would contend that to Mark's readers, it's an ending that is frightening, but it's an ending focused on the supremacy and the power and the awfulness of the Savior upon whom they were depending. I think there's, there's one more wonder to behold here before we move on. And yet again, I ask that we keep those, those early Christians in view. And it's best framed by a question, probably one that a lot of you caused the raised eyebrow when we read a little a few minutes ago. And the question is, is verse 8 true? Is it true? So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Like, 
as written, it, it can't be. It can't be true. Because every person hearing this gospel read to them in the catacombs of Rome, listening to it, knows the story already. They know what happened. So the women could not have actually said nothing to anyone, or else the story would have ended with them. There would be no people hiding, believing in the story. Which means then, and this is important, that even that fear, even that terror, was eventually no match for the wonder of what they had seen. The wonder one. That's the title of this morning's message, if you're curious. Wonder wins. It's not, I think maybe it was a wonder twins pun in my mind when I did it. I don't know. I'm not good at sermon titles. But anyways, that's, that's the point. The wonder won. The miracle could not be kept quiet. One of the strange motifs in Mark, to use a word that we introduced a few weeks ago, is that Jesus often instructs the people who are the recipients of miracles in this gospel to keep quiet about what has happened to them and about who he is. Some critics refer to this, or they have for the last century, as the messianic secret in their studies of this gospel. But of course, the point is not that Jesus is being shy about who he is. The point is that over and over in the gospel, wonder keeps winning. Over and over, he tells people to keep quiet, and they can't do it. They can never do it. What has happened to them is just too amazing to not eventually talk about, even if the God of the universe told you to keep quiet. You just can't. And It's a short line, I think, between that motif and the stories and what Mark wants his readers to understand, which is this idea that a real miracle cannot be contained. You cannot help yourself but to share it. And I'm stretching a bit into conjecture here, but the reason I think this is important is because I can't help but think that this is a message that would resonate with a person who is soon to be interrogated over their faith and who might be executed for proclaiming it. If you are hiding in those catacombs, getting ready to be persecuted or interrogated, people are going to tell you, like, if you say that this thing is true, you're going to die, and if you say that it's not true, you can live. And if I was in that position, I would be worried I would be wondering, am I going to stay strong? Like, am I going to deny my Savior? The people who met Jesus, though, in Mark's gospel are never able to keep quiet about it. And I wonder if one of the reasons that Mark tells the stories the way he does is because he's trying to encourage these people to say, you won't be able to stay quiet either. I know you're scared, but you won't be able to keep quiet about a real miracle because wonder wins. So all of that is to say the ending of Mark's gospel is a mystery, and I think its context helps to solve that mystery. And even more than that, the ending of Mark's gospel calls us to wonder. It calls us to awe in response to the resurrection event. Nothing like this has ever been done. And if we can find the courage to do what Mark asks these women to do, to tell and tells them to tell the disciples to do, which is to follow after this risen Jesus where he leads, Mark's gospel is telling us that we will find him there and that in fact he's waiting for us. So that's the first thing that I think we can find new appreciation for this morning. The gospel teaches us to feel in awe, in awe that can trivialize the hardships that we face by reminding us of the wonderful and awful power of God. 
We miss that when we rush on to the mission of the church in the Easter sermons. But it's so, so important simply on its face for us to hold on to. The resurrection radically transforms who and what we fear in the world. I'll say that again because I should have said it with more emphasis the first time. The resurrection radically transforms who and what we fear in the world. There is hope for us in that this morning. In the words of the man in the tomb, right? Do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Not today and not ever. All right, this is the break. That was, that was sermon one, all done. Now we have shorter sermon two here at the end. But I have to cover it. What about the second thing here? I want us to turn to what I said at the beginning was the, apt- the adaptability of the gospel stories, the adaptability of the gospel stories. Now it's time to get our phones back out. Now, if you can, if you're not already there, if you can, I want you to adjust your translation in your Bible app to the new revised standard version, the NRSV. I don't have some great love for the NRSV. I just think it's the one that makes this next section most clear. And so I want you to go there. The NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. All right, got it. Hopefully you're there. Okay, so the question is, what now happens after verse eight? All right, if you were looking at your phone, you realize we have a problem, like a major problem that you may not have known was sitting here waiting on you. You should be staring in your translation at a bracketed bit of text with the enigmatic label, the shorter ending of Mark. It has no verse identification, but it reads like this. We'll call it verse X. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. The end, again. This is weird, right? What is this? What you're looking at, to give you an answer, is an addition. An addition to Mark's gospel, which does not seem to begin appearing in manuscripts of Mark's gospel until the second century. Roughly, I don't know, anywhere from 70 to 100 years after Mark's original gospel is written. And even at first glance, I think you can tell this is odd, right? So... The women don't tell anybody, and then they tell Peter briefly in the next verse. Like, which is it? Do they tell somebody or do they not tell somebody? Now, if you're not very satisfied by this ending, it would seem that you're not alone, because if you're looking again at that, ver- that translation in your phone, like you already know the secret, which is we have a third. We're not done yet. We have a thing called the longer ending of Mark. And I'm not going to read all of it because it's significantly longer, but suffice it to say it includes some of the following things. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, if you're skimming through, then he appears to two disciples on the road, which echoes another story called where they meet, some disciples meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And then after that, um, the disciples were at a table, and then Jesus comes into the room, which is another story that kind of sounds like a story in another gospel, but here he gives them the great commission, that point where he tells the church what to go off and do, and then Jesus ascends into heaven at the end of that third ending. So I bring this up because I trust that if you ever read the gospel of Mark, you're going to get a little weirded out and confused, and it seemed like we could take some time here in our 
teaching time to try and work through whatever is happening. So what's the real ending? What are we supposed to believe happened? All right, we're going to get scholarly first, but just for a second. Here's what you need to know. The overwhelming consensus is that the earliest copies of Mark's gospel end where we ended before, with verse 8. That verse X starts to show up a little bit later, presumably because verse 8 leaves how the resurrection story gets out unclear. Remember the thing where you all raised your eyebrow, like it's weird that they don't tell anybody? Well, it seems that at some point they're like, we need to clarify that they did, in fact, tell somebody. And so we add this. And then this longer ending is added after that, I would contend, and others would contend, in an attempt to better harmonize Mark as a gospel with the other gospels that are in existence. And I bring all this up because all of this can feel really troubling for us as modern readers, depending on what we think we are looking at when we get into the Bible. And I want to push back on those fears by remembering a few important things. The first is this. As we've discussed, the original point of the early Gospels was not evangelism or converting people to Christianity. The original point of these Gospels was reassurance. They were written to specific communities of Christians to help answer specific questions about Jesus and to offer specific comforts to them in their circumstances. And the reason, of course, is because those communities already knew and believed the Jesus story. At least a decade before Mark is written, back in the 50s AD, we get this thing from an older text from Paul's letter to the Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says this, for I handed on to you what I had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So what that text proves to us, right, is that the whole resurrection story already believed by the church, commonly known and spread more than 50 years before, or not more than 50, more than 10 years before Mark's gospel is written. So the gospel is not telling anybody anything they don't already know. More than that, the resurrection story is already a core part of the early church's beliefs. And the additions to the longer ending aren't something that's created out of nowhere. We see those same points being made by Paul here, like again, before Mark's even written. So those additions are documenting a story that's already widely trusted to be true in the church. So that's point number one. That's what the, yeah, it's up on the screen. Second point, there are multiple gospels and very few early Christians had access to more than one of them. So we have multiple stories, multiple versions of the story, but most Christians don't have access to more than one. So when later copyists make additions to a gospel like Mark's gospel, their point isn't to cause trouble or to upset anybody. Their point is to provide a reader who may never hear another gospel account of Jesus's life with a more complete account of significant events. So you're adding in events that are present in other gospels so that if a person only ends up with Mark in their hand, they get the fullest story possible. And the third thing, the Gospels are not considered Scripture for at least another hundred years. Now, this doesn't mean that they aren't considered important. Their existence from copy to copy 
means that they are treasured. Otherwise, how would it have ever gotten out of Rome in the first place to get to anyone else? It's a treasured document. But it wouldn't have been thought improper to do what has happened here with the longer ending because the focus of the text is on offering living Christians clarity and reassurance. The focus of the text is on offering living Christians clarity and reassurance. Okay. Some of you are thinking I should have stopped five minutes ago. We had a good ending to a sermon. It was all fine. This is weird, right? Okay, perhaps, but hear me out. I'm bringing this up because I want us to understand something incredibly important about Mark. And that is that just because Mark was written to a particular audience doesn't mean that it's not written to us too. Just because we have spent the last month talking about its original audience does not mean that we aren't supposed to read it or that there isn't something here for us. What's amazing about these Gospels is that they have proven to be adaptable witnesses to Jesus, speaking in different ways to different people at different times. Now, I've really enjoyed personally being a nerd for a bit and like getting into the context of the Roman church over the last month as we've worked through this study. And it has helped me have a deeper appreciation for Mark's gospel myself. But Mark's gospel isn't just a history lesson and it's not even a literature lesson. Mark's gospel is a God lesson. And one of the most amazing things about God in the gospels is that he comes to us where we are If you had to summarize all the Gospels in one little sentence, it would probably be that. God comes to us where we are. Mark writes to his readers not because they don't know Jesus' story, but because he wants them to see how Jesus' story prepares them for the crisis that they are in. Similarly, the early church worked to get the Jesus story out to people in all the ways that it could, and that this is why those revisions are there at the end of Mark. That's what they reveal, the early church's commitment to getting the Jesus story out to people. And the church's hope when they did that was the same as Mark's hope when he wrote the gospel in the first place, and that is that by some divine miracle, the story of Jesus, if you hear it, might bring life to people who are dying. That the story might bring life to people who are dying. That by some miracle, Jesus will do that work. And I didn't want to skip over this part of our conversation about Mark because I want to seize this opportunity outside the Easter season to remind you that the Bible is worth engaging deeply. Too often we react to the Bible, especially to things that are frightening in it, the same way that the women in Mark's original ending react to the empty tomb. We don't understand what we're looking at and we fear But we also know that Mark's ending isn't their ending. Those women overcome that fear and they do as they were instructed. They tell the disciples what they've seen. And even though because of that power differential we talked about, they are not authorities in their culture and it would be easy to disprove their witness, there is something about the depth of their belief and their passionate conviction about what they have seen that carries the day, that wins people over who would be wired not to listen to them And we know that that happened because if it hadn't happened, none of us would know that the tomb was empty. 
So the challenge here at the end is that we can be similarly bold. That our God is still speaking to us, that the stories of Jesus are still moving among his people, and there is living hope in those stories for us. The stories are awful in the strict sense of that word. Overwhelming wonder is their whole point, and that overwhelming wonder is the source of our hope. The Jesus story is an ongoing miracle, both because he's alive and because these texts that tell the story are living too. And so we can be a church of people. The challenge today is that we can be a church of people who are seeking amazement, that we can think about our faith in that way, that we're seeking amazement, that we're actively on the lookout for amazement, for a God who keeps working, and that you, that can be us as a church, and that you as an individual can be a person with a similar imagination and a similarly eager curiosity. So what does it mean? What does a living Jesus mean for the way that you see the world? The awfulness of a living Jesus. What does it mean for how you see the world? What does it mean for how you see your fears? What does it mean for your ability to be generous? Or your ability to be patient with someone? Or your ability to be forgiving? Which is just a way of saying, if Jesus is alive, what changes for you? What is possible in your world? I would contend that our purpose as Christians, our purpose as a church, is to be people who try to find out. That's the mission in a nutshell. Try to find out. 